Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I am your host, George Mason, and in our continuing series on good politics, uh, we have today B. Moorhead, who is the Executive Director of Texas Impact, and she is here to talk with us about faith-based advocacy in an interfaith mode and how that's been working uh, for her as she has led Texas Impact for two decades now. And uh, that's extraordinary, B. but we welcome you to the program and we look forward to this conversation. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a treat. Well, great. Well, we've gotten to know each other because we've been working together uh, as Faith Commons is a faith-based organization uh, that works in the advocacy area as well. Um, and uh, Texas Impact does that work in Austin and around the state in bringing people together. Uh, but, but tell us more about uh, the, the history and mission of Texas Impact. Sure. So Texas Impact was established in 1973, actually, um, to be a presence of religious social concern to the Texas legislature. And specifically, uh, it was supposed to, and still does, represent the what we would describe as the, the widely shared and deeply held beliefs of the, the various faith communities in the state around our particular call to care for the poor, people who are victims of discrimination, and people who are otherwise marginalized in our communities. Right. So I, I think you made some interesting comments right there about the widely held shared values uh, that people of faith have uh, around caring for marginalized and poor people. We do find ourselves, though, in an ongoing challenge these days, I think, over whether those are widely shared values, right, in our state, um, because uh, it, it seems that there may have been a time when whether you were of this party or that, of this church or religion or that, that the things you just said were things we'd held in common. Now, the means by which we got there and achieved those ends were, um, you know, different perhaps in terms of whether you believe in uh, big government or regulation or more free enterprise and those sorts of things. Uh, are those values as widely um, held and, and shared today in Texas, do you think? I mean, yes, I do. Okay. I do think that they are. And, and I want to say something about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the issue of widely shared and, and the intersection with your question about interfaith. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Texas Impact started, interfaith in Texas generally meant in the in the minds of most people it meant christian and jewish and right. honestly i mean as long as we're sort of talking in a community where our language is shared it really referred to catholic and protestant and jewish there was right. you know kind of a, a a propensity to think of the catholic church as a different faith than Protestant at that sure, point. Right. And, and it's no, uh, it, it's no accident that Texas impact started 
1973, so did a lot of other interfaith activities around the country. And part of the impetus for that was in fact Vatican II. And the idea that um, the, the biggest faith community in the world, the Catholic Church, was wanted to be in relationship with the rest of the, the faith communities. And so I think we often think about interfaith as sort of a lowest common denominator, right. that, that whatever we all agree on, the things that are widely shared, the most widely shared, those are the ones that we should focus on. I would suggest to you, George, that it, there's a different way to think about it, which has been my privilege in my work at Texas Impact. And that is to go a little bit more in the direction of those deeply held ideas and to, to understand that as people of faith, we can benefit not just in making common cause with people who share our beliefs, but in coming to understand what's, what is different about our beliefs as well. Sometimes it makes us deeper in our own faith. That often happens to me. And also sometimes it gives us new ways to think about those things that we think are important, we think are interesting, but we weren't really sure how to talk about them. And as Texas has become more and more religiously diverse, Houston, Texas, the most religiously diverse large city in the country, and Dallas, I'm sure is not far behind, Right. We have more and more opportunity to speak with people who, as you say, we don't, we can't tell that we always agree on all the things, but we can really start to get a deeper uh, shared humanity as we understand where each other is coming from. Okay, so let's talk about your own uh, faith background that drives you into this work and motivates you every day. Because I think, you know, part of the whole concept of good God, this, this podcast is, is to, to keep trying to make that connection between the personal and the public. So I'm curious about, um, uh, about how you apply your own personal uh, spiritual life and faith. So I want to, I want to tell you about me. I grew up in the 1970s in Kent, Ohio, where Kent State University is. Oh, okay. So when I was in kindergarten, the National Guard tanks that came to you know, participate in the violence that happened at Kent State parked on the playground of my elementary school. Wow. And I okay. and other friends of mine were uh, hustled home through the woods to our parents' houses as the city went into martial law. So. Some of my earliest memories are of um, a very public instance when public policy and politics and government went wrong. Okay. And my parents were, uh, they were not, you know, activists so much, but my dad taught at Kent State. He was a music professor. My mom was a member of the city council in that small town and then went on to become a lawyer and a judge later. And so I had an example of, uh, you came life, back lived, yeah. <laughs> life lived publicly in a period of turmoil. At the same time, my mother also was a volunteer with Fish, who you maybe will remember, uh, was a it was kind of a church women united ancillary right. that did direct service ministry. My dad was part of the Salvation Army apparatus in that county. And so I also grew up with and 
you know, I belonged to, at that time I belonged to the Episcopal church. Um, I was raised in that church. And so I saw uh, direct service all the time. And as I grew up, I came to the University of Texas. I um, made a huge rebellious move and switched from being Episcopalian to Presbyterian. I think my parents were like, wow, okay, I guess we lucked out on the rebellion on that one. Um, but I participated in direct service ministries. I went on mission trips. And then as a young mother, I had the opportunity to be a volunteer in the public hospital in Austin that where uh, uninsured people went and had babies. And so I saw a very different part of the world than I had been used to seeing. All of those experiences together right. are what prepared me to one, work in state government. So my, I, many people don't know this, but my undergraduate degree is in costume design. I intended to work on Broadway, oh, wow. and, but instead I, I will tell you, I mean, I understand the language of call very much because I felt it deep in my heart. I had a moment where, as I was with a mother who was having a baby and she didn't speak any English and right. she was alone. And I thought, I think something is wrong. And I think God is calling me to something more than making costumes for plays. I think I have a job here. And I left and applied to the LBJ school and uh, went to the LBJ school and went to work in state government. Because of all my prior experiences, as I was in state government, I was very attuned to how people, how different people saw the problems of government and where people's faith seemed to intersect with their work. And so when Texas Impact called me, I was able to bring all of that into the work that I do with our members. When I tell people the most important advocacy you can do is not because you learn some fact off a piece of paper, it's because you have a story of yourself in your community, the way you interact with other people, the direct services that you do, the neighbors that you have, all of those things, that's where your advocacy comes from, your unique understanding of your community. So I think for a lot of people of faith, their story is similar enough to yours at the front end, but it never gets to the back end. That is to say, they participate in mission trips. They get involved in direct service charity work through their church or synagogue or mosque. They're in their community and they see that here are some you know, women who are fleeing a domestic violence situation. We need to help them. Here are the homeless uh, that we should feed. Here, here are uh, children that need tutoring. But that's the end of that work. And I, I think the important link that you're talking about is that at some point, some of us get to the point where we say, it's not that that's wrong or uh, wicked or should stop, but maybe we should go a bit deeper to the cause and say, what's the link between public policy and the things we do uh, politically? 
and the outcome in people's lives that keeps producing the need for all this charity. So we have this story about the children in the river. You and I are both very familiar with this, that the two two guys are walking, or two women are walking along the river and they see the baby floating downstream. And one of them says, we need to save that baby. And so they fish the baby out of the river, more babies come. And finally, one of them says, I think I better go upstream and see who keeps throwing all those babies in the river. Mm-hmm. What we would say is there is, and if you will, you know, kind of indulge me that maybe she needs to cross the stream to mm-hmm. go find the source, right? right? It's not just a question of going upstream. That bridge that she has to cross That is the bridge that in the Wesleyan tradition, they would describe as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Part where, yes, there's always a name for it, right? John Wesley did not make up the term quadrilateral. I do not think. But he described that what happens is in, in the life of faith, we have the tradition that we come from, the scripture that we live by, our lived experience, and then we have something called reason. And reason is the part that applies all that other information and helps us to see what what the policy, what the systems issues are that, that are contributing to the lived experience that we have. I think in our local communities, the place where local congregations, let's say, most often fail to make that transition is not that they don't believe that their systems problems. They do. They believe that there are issues. It's that they don't have a, an understanding of the, their current involvement in implementing policy. So if you run a, a food pantry, let's say, it is, it is easy to say, well, that's just a charity ministry. That's just something we do in our congregation. The congregations, the local churches that are able to make the leap start by saying, we have this feeding program and it has nexus with public policy that already exists. Not just about, you know, there's poor people and we need policy that makes that better, but Somebody's giving us a certificate that says we're allowed to serve food. That's state government or city government. Somebody is, is in charge of making sure that we have streets where the people can get to us. When you start to see yourself as a co-implementer, right. then you have made a move that the Lutheran church has made a big statement about in the past couple, year and a half about government where you say, God gives us government so that we can live together in love and we are charged with participating in it. So government is not over there. Government is something that we are part of. You and I are participating in implementing systems just by being on this Zoom together. Right. So that's the move. And so what we ask people to do is don't start with, uh, signing up for some national thing and signing on the line, start by talking to local government people and understanding where you fit in. And then you'll have a better idea of what your particular story, your particular advocacy, 
might have to offer into the public square. It reminds me of uh, Cornell West's um, statement about how love uh, is different in private and public, that it that intimacy is what love looks like in private, but justice is what love looks like in public. And so, I, and I like that. So if, if you're gonna talk about love, well, th there is a public aspect of it and that is to create a just society. And so uh, I think about, for instance, to, to, to make your point, uh, in this very Texas legislate, legislature, uh, there was a bill that was termed uh, the Bonton Farms Bill, uh, which is a, uh, a community-based um, farm and um, employment uh, neighborhood project of Darren Babcock and the Bonton community here in Dallas. Uh, what Darren Babcock learned in uh, his work in Bonton, which was, a, it, it's a community that was named Bonton because it was a boom, a boom town is what it really was because of the Klan uh, exploding bombs in the neighborhood. And so it came to be known as Bonton. Well, it's been a very uh, disinvested community and uh, shut off by roads of highways and levees and all of that. And the people in that community uh, have experienced tremendous health problems for a lack of food and fr fresh food. And then also uh, they, they have criminal records and legal problems. And so what uh, part of what uh, Darren Batcock did with the Bontown community is to say, um, when people get out of jail in our community and come back and try to rebuild their lives, they have felon records that make it impossible for them uh, to transcend their past uh, aggressions, their transgressions. And so uh, the law being proposed was that uh, they, they be able to uh, you know, have their record expunged if they've done their time, uh, that, that they have an opportunity to rebuild their lives without the liability of all of that hanging over them. And this is that link between the charitable work that we're talking about and the public policy that allows people to have a second chance, to flourish, to contribute to the economy and not to live in despair, but to, but to live in hope. I mean, it's such a perfect example, right? And one of the things that we saw in the legislature was that legislators didn't necessarily have a hard time understanding that. I mean, across the political spectrum, right. there was general, uh, general, what do I want to say? Affirmation that that's a good idea, right? right. That the, and, and, one of the things that's been interesting to me, so we have, I, I'm real excited that you would use that Cornell West language about love. We, you know, I teach a class at Austin Seminary. And what I always start by saying is, we, as, the, as the faith community, we want to say there are two reasons to have public policy. 
One is because we hate and fear each other. It's to build walls that protect me from you and you from me. The other is because we love each other. Nice. And we, in any given day, you and I and everyone else gets up in the morning and it is true that we love each other, but we had a bad day yesterday or something is, you know, getting to us and we are not able under our own steam to live in the loving way that we know we want to in every case. When I see that person at the stop sign, I am not feeling charitable to them. <laughs> Policy is what builds the framework so that we can live into the loving ideal of community that we all share. And I believe we all share it. And I think when you see that Montan Farms bill, I also think when you see a very conservative legislator, Matt Krause, who uh, had a bill that had to do with medically fragile children. Right. When you see that, you see, or you see Jeff Leach, another very conservative member who is, uh, has had uh, a big experience that has made him understand that there are some parts of death penalty that are, right. uh, that he can't affirm. Then you, you, what we want to do as much as possible is to say that is a loving instinct. Mm -hmm. And we want to affirm that loving instinct. I think, and I, I know you're, you want to talk about challenges. Sometimes we have to say the instinct that is motivating a legislator is not loving. And we do have to, we, we have to, uh, we have to have a strategy for how in love we approach someone to say, this is not the, we can't affirm that you are acting out of love in this moment. Right. You're acting out of fear and, and that's not what God wants for us. So I think you're, you're actually putting your finger on one of the challenges that um, faith-based advocacy wrestles with. And that is uh, how to, how to deal with people who are operating out of fear and not love, whose orientation toward government is about only restraining uh, bad behavior uh, and not promoting good behavior. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of that is, I think, from the faith community, maybe about monitoring our own uh, language and our own approach to people so that we don't simply become a partisans ourselves and say, uh, you know, we're really carrying water here for this party or that party. And part of the problem is we've got to defeat the other. Uh, instead, we've got to figure out how to bring a different tone with our passion, right? Uh, so that we can teach people that kind of mutual respect, even in the midst of our differences. Well, that's right. And what I am coming to believe towards as, as we move to the end of this legislative session, and it really has been very rocky, and there's been a lot of stuff that I believe could have passed and should have passed that is likely to not pass, <clears throat> excuse me, 
it's a it is fashionable to say that legislator is not representing their district, right? If they do something we don't want, they say they're not representing their district, but they are. They they are representing someone in their district. If they weren't, they wouldn't be elected. Right. So when we, the church, find ourselves saying that legislator is not representing their district, I think it signals two things. One, we better learn more about that legislator. And the only way to do that is by talking with them directly. And the other is we better learn more about this district because there is somebody here who doesn't who doesn't share. I don't think it's fair to say they don't share our values. Maybe, maybe they don't. But it is definitely true that they don't share our worldview and the way to overcome the kind of political strife that we're in right now is is to learn what their worldview is. So with with that, you're urging us all to become more personally engaged in knowing our legislators, legislators and contacting them and being engaged. And this is as our sort of final part of this conversation be, I think it, it, Texas Impact facilitates that work, uh, helps people, ordinary people in the pew of church, synagogue, mosque, whatever your religious tradition, to learn how to do that work. I think one of the biggest hurdles for ordinary people is they don't actually know how to get into that. They, they are, I have a friend who's very passionate, for instance, and she said, okay, I've emailed things and all of that, but for the first time I got up the nerve to pick up the phone and call my senator or my legislator. And she said, oh, it was so much work to get myself to that point, but I feel proud of myself that I did it. But I think that's one of the big hurdles, isn't it? So how, how do you facilitate that? And what do you want to say to people about getting involved? Well, what I want to say to people about getting involved is, <clears throat> come on in, the water's fine. Yes. It, is, it is not any harder than calling somebody to be on your committee at PTA. Okay. But, but when I learned how to change a gasket in my faucet at my house, I did it the way anybody would do these days. I thought, well, I'll just look on YouTube. There's bound to be a video. Right. Video is how people are learning a lot of stuff. And that is true for advocacy too. Texas Impact has a weekly program called Weekly Witness. Right. It's on at it's on Facebook at noon on Mondays, and then it's a podcast just like this one. Mm -hmm. And you can learn little by little through Weekly Witness all the ways to be engaged and and all the all the tools, all the tips and tricks to make it effective and fun. And it actually works, doesn't it? I mean, there, there is an impact uh, in Texas, Texas impact of people calling their legislators, writing, uh, doing the things that, you know, you, you, you sometimes think, oh, it doesn't matter, right? We've generated, I think, 6,000 phone calls to legislators this session, mm -hmm. just from ordinary people who figured out that they can make that call. So they decided to do it and they did. And invariably what they say is it was easier, faster, and more rewarding than I could have imagined. And what the legislators will tell you in return is when they thought about their vote, they thought about the fact that they had these hundreds of constituents who called to say, 
I want you to do, to do this. And even if they didn't, they knew that they had to reckon with that, right? Exactly so. Just because they don't do everything you ask them to do doesn't mean that you're not building that relationship over time. So right. this isn't a, it's not transactional, it's relational. Terrific. B, thank you for all the work you do uh, for the common good. Thank you for Texas Impact and its partnership with the faith community. And we look forward to continuing to work together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. All right. Well, have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God. Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.